In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When I was about four or five years old, my grandparents put in a large in-ground 10-foot swimming pool. And I was the youngest of four grandchildren on that side of the family, and I wasn't paying much attention at that age, but I could tell from the excitement of my cousins that this swimming pool was a really big deal. It was going to revolutionize our summers. And I still remember the machinery and the large mountains of red dirt in their backyard. And when the pool was finished, it was time for me to learn to swim. My family is full of swimmers, and my great aunt had uh, the first public pool in town, and my father had grown up next door, and he and his siblings swim like fish. Um, And his belief was that one learned to swim by just jumping in. (laughs) But I couldn't. The water scared me. And just to enter the water, I needed my swimmies those little inflatable tubes that children wear around their arms. You've probably seen them. And even after several years and many swimming lessons, I still had those swimmies. One finally burst, and my parents refused to replace it, so I would put the remaining swimmy on one arm, (laughs) convinced that it would keep me from drowning. My parents would tell me that I knew how to swim. I had everything I needed to be just fine, but I didn't trust it. What did they know? (laughs) Still remember one summer Sunday, we went straight to the pool after church, and I jumped in the deep end with that single swimmy placed high on my arm, and it popped right off. And convinced I was drowning, I flailed my arms and began to scream for help, and my grandmother, still in her church dress, dove headfirst into the pool and scooped me up in her arms, but she didn't pull me to the side or take me to the shallow end. She just gently kicked her legs and whispered in my ear, it's okay, we're swimming. I was convinced I could do it all on my own. I didn't need anyone's help, just the false assurance of that single swimming, but I didn't realize I actually needed the guidance and assurance of my family. It wasn't about doing it a certain way or using the perfect technique or the perfect stroke. It was about trusting that I had what I needed, and if I got into trouble, someone was there to scoop me up and help me swim. This morning's gospel is about grace and trust and hope. It's about letting go and trusting God. And at first glance, you may think this gospel is just a hard lesson about murder and adultery and divorce and swearing, but it isn't actually about those things at all. Last week, Mother Amanda teed us up perfectly when she reminded us that Jesus makes clear he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The purpose and end of the law is met in him and who he is and what he has accomplished through his death and resurrection. And as our gospel passages weave through the Sermon on the Mount, that famous and lengthy teaching of Jesus where we hear the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed are the peacemakers, 
when we weave through this sermon, it's tempting to try to separate the Sermon on the Mount from its preacher, as if it were simply a list of instructions or as if Jesus were giving a TED Talk. But instead, all of the teaching we hear in the Sermon on the Mount, and especially in this morning's Gospel, is embodied and made incarnate in Him, in Jesus Christ. It is fulfilled in Him because it is impossible for us. Last week we heard from Jesus, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These words must have been difficult for his followers to hear. Imagine how they must have felt to hear that unless their righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, the ones known for taking the law so seriously, for applying it to daily living, that that unless they are more righteous than them, they will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Perhaps it would be like many of us hearing Jesus say, unless your righteousness exceeds that of Mother Teresa, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But as if that teaching weren't hard enough, Jesus cranks up the heat just a bit higher this morning. He takes the law to its logical end. You have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you are angry with your sister or brother, you will be liable. It is as if you have committed murder in your heart. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But, if you, but I say to you, if you look upon another with lust, you have already committed adultery in your heart. Now, there are many interpretations of this text. And perhaps the most common interpretation is that Jesus is asking his followers to obey the spirit of the law rather than the letter. To not simply live by what the law says, but to live as if the law is written in their hearts to confront anger before it leads to resentment and dehumanization and then murder. To take the law seriously, but even more seriously. There's one problem with that interpretation. Jesus is clear in this passage that the law requires his followers to not simply obey, but to do so with perfection. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. There is no room in the law for grace, for learning, for trust. And if the law requires perfection, all of us are doomed. Under the law, if you lose your patience with the person who beat you to the parking spot at the grocery store, then you have committed murder. If this is the case, there is no hope for any of us. It is a lesson that will almost leave you hopeless. How could we possibly uphold these commandments? Murder in the heart? Adultery in the heart? Here's a different interpretation. Jesus is not asking for perfection. He is showing us how difficult and impossible adherence to the law is. Jesus is taking the law to the extreme, to its logical end, to prove a greater point. 
By asking us to tear out our eyes and cut off our hands, Jesus is revealing the true absurdity of trying to live righteously before God based on our own merits. Jesus is revealing this simple truth. Our only hope is in him and what he has done for us. Our hope is not in the law. It's not in getting things right. It's not in how hard we work. It's not even in just being a good or nice person. That's not what our faith is about. You don't have to be a Christian to be a good person. If we rely on the good stuff we do, if we turn those things into a new law, unattainable, separated from God's grace, instead our ministries as followers of Jesus are a response to the gospel, trusting that the good news of Christ will guide us in the work God has given us to do. Our worth and our righteousness before God comes through the grace the forgiveness and the love revealed in Christ on the cross. In his outstretched arms, in his ministry, in his life, in his death and resurrection. In today's gospel, Jesus is showing us that there is no way we could possibly uphold these rules. And for that reason, we need a redeemer. Or as my colleague Aaron Zimmerman put it this week, Jesus is not here to be our life coach. He's here to be our savior. As we are nearing the end of the season after the Epiphany, our lessons are reaching a fever pitch as we approach Ash Wednesday and the season of Lent. We are being reminded that we cannot save ourselves. If the salvation, redemption, and reconciliation of the world depend on us, then we should just close up shop and go to brunch. But friends, God is accomplishing something new. And this active, life-giving God is inviting all of us in this weary world into a new life of grace and hope and love. This message of hope and love is not only applicable to us as individuals, but also for us as a church. I remember the days after Michael Curry was elected presiding bishop, he held a meeting with the clergy of the diocese in Greensboro. And as thrilled as we were for him and for the larger church, there was an obvious anxiety in the room about what would come next for the diocese. After all, he had been bishop for 15 years. And one priest stood up and expressed this to Bishop Curry and asked him to pray for us, And Bishop Curry responded, you're going to be in good hands because you're going to be in the same hands you've been in all along, the hands of the crucified one. We can worry so much about ourselves, about our projects, about our work, our worth, that we forget that this world, this church, and even our very lives do not belong to us. They belong to Christ. He is at the center of everything we are and everything we do. And if we are willing to let go and to know that our perfection isn't required, if we are willing to lean on his perfection and his love, 
And when we are convinced we are drowning, if we are willing to let him scoop us up in his arms and swim for us, then we will experience the freedom and the joy of the new life God gives to us and to the whole creation. Perfection is not required, just faith, hope, and love. And that is good news. Amen.